Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Ladies Who Punt is brought to you by Inglis. Inglis has had over a century of turf champions go through their sales rings. And now with their pink bonus series, there has never been a better time for women to join in on the fun of racehorse ownership. That's right, Grace. With the bonus prize money up for grabs, the Pink Bonus Series is a great initiative to get more women involved in racing, making Inglis a fabulous partner to ladies who punt. We can't thank them enough for supporting our podcast and the representation of women in the racing media. Field is ready. They're racing in the Oaks. Hello and welcome back to Ladies Who Punt. We are the podcast that aims to decode the sport of horse racing one topic at a time. My name is Fiona Blair and I'm with Grace Ramage. Grace, how was it at Randwick Trackside for day two of the championships? Oh, it was so good, Fee. Hello to you and hello to everybody listening in to another episode of Ladies Who Punt. It was such a fun day to be there again. Um, great atmosphere. But I tell you what, we are certainly well on the way to winter, which is very <laughs> upsetting for those who much prefer summer and love the heat like me. Um, because, you know, it wasn't it wasn't cold, but it was a very gluggy track. The jockeys were coming back from riding in their races at Randwick, you know, big, rich races, saying that the track felt like glue. Like once the horses put their feet in it, it took a lot of effort for them to get it back out. It was really sticky and gluey. And even this week, we've seen that we've had a race meeting here in Victoria, Wednesday's Ballarat meeting, abandoned because of the amount of rain that they received overnight. So yeah, things are definitely looking pretty gloomy for the next few months, Um, but that's just the way it goes. And that's just the way that the racing seasons follow the calendar. And, you know, we look ahead to a lot of wet tracks and a lot of horses that handle those conditions. And also the start of the synthetic racing season here in Victoria, where if it is too wet, we can race on the all weather tracks. Um, So get ready for that everybody because that's what we've got to look forward to over the next couple of months yeah grace i'm sitting in front of the fire today up in strathbogie it's freezing it's cold it's wet and this is actually our last episode for five weeks and we'll be rejoining the action once we're racing up in queensland so at least the temperature up there will be much more satisfactory to race goers uh in the north of the country yeah imagine if we could all just oh Actually, Faye, I've got a great idea. We should definitely do Ladies Who Punt filming on location. <laughs> oh, why haven't we thought of moving this? up to Queensland. Let's get sponsored by Qantas and we'll go. <laughs> yes. Amazing idea. Fantastic. Yeah, leave the fire behind. Go for the tropical weather. That sounds good. I mean, if only. That would be beautiful. One day I'll get up there for uh, that time of year, the big Queensland carnival. But for now, we'll just have to watch from the sidelines and we've got Uh, a different episode today to finish us off for our first prep for 2023 and it's an episode all based around questions sent in from our ladies who punt 
community. So we put out the call yesterday for any type of question, could be about horses, could be about the podcast, could be about us, could be about anything to do with what we are doing here at Ladies Who Punt. And we got quite a few good questions. Grace, are you excited to to hear from our community? Yeah, absolutely. I think that these episodes that we do when we respond to listener questions are fantastic because ultimately what we're trying to do each and every episode is help um, our audience and the people that listen in understand racing better. And, you know, if there's a specific area that you're still a little bit confused about or want better clarification on, then we are here to help. So looking forward to getting stuck into answering all of the questions that were sent through. Okay, well, we better get stuck in because there's quite a few to get through. And I think some of them are going to be quite uh, in-depth answers that we have to provide. So let's go into our first question now. Right, Grace, we've been sent in a heap of great questions from our community and people have sent in a few questions to get to know us better. So that's going to be great to be able to provide some context about who we are and and why we're here to our listeners. The first question starts with, what is our favourite racetrack and why? Our favourite race day and why? And our favourite jockey? And why? Do you want to start off, Grace? Yep, I can definitely start off, Fee. And a really good question because, you know, we cover so many different things. But let's actually get down to what we like the most and what we look for the most and what we feel most confident about when we get that scenario and why. So favorite racetrack for me, I think, is probably Caulfield. And the reason that I really like Caulfield is I just feel like I understand it well because the actual track shape of Caulfield um, is somewhere between Flemington and also Mooney Valley. And especially when it comes to the straight and how long the straight is, it's about 400 metres, whereas the valley is about 200 metres and Flemington's uh, longer than than Caulfield as well. So it's sort of just in the middle there. But you've got a 1,200 metre shoot start. So horses that are in the sprint races from 1,011 or 1,200 metre races only have to tackle one bend into the home straight. And you've also got a 1,400 metre shoot start where you basically jump from the 1,400 metre start and you're basically turning straight away. So these are things that I've sort of got the hang of in my head. And what that means is when I'm faced with any race at Caulfield or any race meeting, I seem to be able to picture it more clearly and sort of, I suppose, ultimately have a better success rate at predicting the outcomes. At Flemington, I find because it's such a long straight and because um, jockeys then ride more patiently because they know that they're going to have time to get clear it can be a little bit more confusing it's harder to predict because you just don't know that what the way jockeys are thinking in the run um and then on the other end mooney valley uh is just a lottery like if you don't have the right run and you're bottled up coming into the bend and you get out late it's all over you're not going to get there in time so for me caulfield's like the happy medium and i feel as though i can pretty accurately predict how races are going to be run that's not to say that I always find the winner of every race but the way that um I suppose my confidence levels are higher at Caulfield than they are at the other tracks what about you Fee? Well Grace you've come at it from a pure form perspective and I'm going to come at it from a spectator perspective because I'm not experienced enough uh in terms of doing the form on different tracks across Australia but My favourite one to attend until recently was the Valley. I just like that it's small, it's sort of easy to get around um, and I like Friday night racing. But 
I did go to Flemington again recently for Australia Cup Day and I just loved how spaced out it was this time. There was so much room to move. The you know, general admission area is just amazing. You don't have to be in members to have a really great experience. Um, so I'd have to move back to Flemington for now. Um, but that is to say, I don't go racing trackside that often. It's something I definitely want to do more of in the near future. But for now, I'm going to stick with Flemington just because of the spaciousness of it and the amazing facilities that are on offer. So the next part of that question was your favorite race day and why. I'll start off with this one. I don't think I have enough like trackside experience to have maybe a favorite race day. The meeting that I've attended the most is the Manicato at, at the Valley the other one I will give a mention is the Caracamillion during the sales in New Zealand and Auckland. That is a fabulous sort of twilight meeting. Um, I've really enjoyed going there a couple of times in the past. But Grace, you'll have a much better idea of this. What is your favourite race day and why? That's a really hard question because there's so many and it's it's honestly hard to pick one. Um, firstly, I'll say I've been to Caracamillion as well and that's a heap of fun like it feels like yeah. a party yeah. and those crazy kiwis feet they love to chant at the races like it feels like you know you're at a soccer match or something it's insane yeah. it's so great so yes definitely put that um on the bucket list too if you can get over to ellerslie or over to new zealand when they run the crack a million meeting but for me i'd have to say the number one every year my number one favorite race day would have to be derby day so the first day, the Saturday of Melbourne Cup week. And the reason is, is that you've already been through a lot of Group 1 races for the Spring Carnival. Like you've already had the Cox Plate run. You've already had the Caulfield Cup run. You get to Derby Day and you know that you've got four huge days on the world stage ahead of you. The, the fields on Derby Day, 10 races, are as good as it gets anywhere because you've got the four Group 1s run on the day and you know like every good horse is in melbourne for that week because there's no clash with sydney there's no clash with other parts of australia so if you've got a group one horse you're in melbourne for those four days or for a race over the four days of the flemington carnival and it's all ahead of you so it's just a really good um feeling walking into flemington that day whether you're working or whether you're just there as a race goer just an amazing atmosphere um so yeah derby day for me my favorite race day of the year let's now go on to our favorite jockeys who is your favorite jockey and why See, this is probably the most hard question for me, Fee, because I don't really have a favourite jockey, which is very strange. Um, But, you know, when I think about it, there are so many riders that are so good that you just have so much confidence in their ability to make the right decision in most races. So I don't really have one standout jockey. I'd probably have to say um, Jamie Carr is obviously a favorite because not only is she an amazing jockey but she is just such an amazing female representation in racing and the fact that she has broken so many records on her way to becoming a champion jockey is just unbelievable and we love jamie so much so yeah she'd have to be one of my favorites but look i don't have a clear standout jockey that i think oh that that jockey's riding this horse so i'm going to elevate you know that horse in my thoughts now or i don't follow a certain jockey and their rides do you feel i think in terms of like punting no but if as an owner i would yeah definitely like jamie carr on my horse 
Okay, so the next one, I think we've spoken about this a few times on the podcast, Grace. So we'll just give a quick brief overview of this. But how did we get into racing? Now, from my memory, were you like an accountant or something before you got into broadcasting? Is that right? Uh, I don't know if I was an accountant, Fee, but I certainly did work at Ernst & Young for 18 months as a graduate auditor, which I'm never going to actually say I was an accountant. Because I was useless at the caper, hence why it was only short-lived. But look, I did work um, straight out of university when I was thinking, what am I going to do for a career? Obviously, I um, applied for a bunch of jobs and got this one. But I was only there for 18 months because then I got the job at racing.com and then started a new career in obviously horse racing, journalism and broadcasting. But in terms of how I got into racing from the very beginning, well, it's always been my family's sport. So, you know, a lot of people love Geelong Cats because their family go for the Geelong Cats or, you know, they love NRL team because their grandfather and their parents and everything, you know, it's just, it's literally, it's what you grow up with and it's what you grow to love yourself, that their passion becomes your passion. So it's exactly what happened to me um, going to the races frequently i remember like in the middle of winter i'd be going to caulfield during the saturday um, race meeting and then go home get changed and then go to the mooney valley trots on a saturday night that was my weekend because my parents would potentially um you know have a horse running from an ownership perspective Um, my family were also in harness racehorses as well hence the trots so yeah i've always been exposed to it and i was passionate about it ever since i can remember absolutely fell in love with some superstar female horses being Sunline mainly she was my girl also loved Ethereal um, who won a Caulfield Cup and a Melbourne Cup and Sheila Laxon who trained Ethereal I was obsessed with her for a little while as well so you know again we're talking about strong female representation being either equine or human and I was just absolutely grabbed by it and I thought I want to be in this this is this is this is my home and I'm so thankful that I was able to get a job in what was my in the area that is my passion and then still working in that today. Yeah, it's so great. We're so lucky to have you in the racing media, Grace, uh, flying that flag, just like the ladies did for you when you were younger. Um, For me, I'm sort of the opposite. No family connection to racing at all. Sort of stumbled in it into the industry in my early 20s on a summer working job at a horse stud. Had limited horse ability, but managed to get the job anyway and fell in love with the industry from from that perspective, from working hands-on, not really knowing anything about racing, just enjoying the horses. And that's taking me to Australia and, and slowly to where I am now, working more in communications and doing Ladies Who Punt with you, Grace. So... Yeah, the next question again is about us and our careers, I guess. What does your week look like? What are your work days? What are all the different jobs that you do? So I might start with myself for this one. So my real job, as I will call it, is uh, doing communications at Lindsay Park Racing. Before having little Duncan, I was doing that full time, filming the track work Um, and sending that out to owners and editing trials and jump outs and things like that, doing updates with the trainers. Coming back um, after maternity leave, I'm cutting back to a few days a week and doing more sort of marketing work and still some owner communications. 
So that's my real job that I do three days a week. And then Ladies Who Punt obviously is a big part of my week now. So that I reckon is about one to one and a half days a week of work for me. So that means on Wednesdays we record. And then that night I edit the episode once the kids are in bed and it comes out on Thursday morning. And then I spend quite a bit of quite a few hours each week trying to promote and get the episode out to you guys and to new people as well. So that's my working week. Grace, you're everywhere. You're in Euroa, you're in Melbourne, you're all over the place. Paint us a map of what your week looks like. So my week generally starts uh, at the farm in Euroa at Lindsay Park because I would say my full-time job is Lindsay Park as well. That's where the bulk of my hours and my brain power is spent now. Um, So I spend my first couple of days each week up in Euroa at the farm where I'm doing my Lindsay Park duties, which is many different things that I do, but on a daily basis, you know, having a look at the races that our horses have accepted in, making sure that we are, you know, winning chances in each of those races. Um, But then also thinking of how tactically we want those races to pan out for us and potentially giving the jockeys an idea of where there might be an area that we can take advantage of and therefore give our horse a better chance. So that's sort of um, one of my main jobs at Lindsay Park, but there's heaps of other things that I do as well at the farm. But then I make my way to Melbourne, probably on a Wednesday most weeks where I continue doing Lindsay Park work every day of the week because if we have horses running on a Sunday that means I'm working on a Sunday as well but uh, I obviously put a lot of time during the week into my media as well still doing um, TV stuff whether it be for sportsbet on racing.com whether it be for racing.com itself doing shows um, you know at any time during the week Uh, I also do a little bit of work for the VRC as well. So there's quite a few different things as a contractor now. I don't have any full-time roles at any media outlet. I am basically just available for hire. That's how I would explain myself, but have regular shows that I appear on and things like that. So then I also do Ladies Who Punt with Yuffie on a Wednesday. So look, I love the spread of my roles i love being able to always think about something new and the next day think okay now i need to focus back in this space it just keeps it fresh and it keeps it um you know there's always something to look forward to so i really enjoy being busy and i yeah i'm really happy with the way that it's all going yeah that's really interesting to hear you wear a lot of hats and uh from your answer i'm gathering that uh every week looks slightly different there's a few things that sort of signpost your week but You could be doing anything, anywhere, really, Grace. Now, we're going to move on to some questions specifically for you. They're sort of more like form questions, Grace, that I think you're in a better position to answer. However, the first one is about an experience that you can give some insight to. So one of our listeners has asked you for recommendations or tips for a day at Royal Ascot. She has tickets to the Royal Enclosure for a day this year. Lucky lady. You were there last year, Grace. What would you suggest to this listener? Well, you're going to have an amazing time because Royal Ascot is just so special um it's very different to australian racing and a racing experience um in the sense where it's a it's a little bit more sophisticated but also a little bit more relaxed i would say um so you know it's a bit more leisurely so when you've got a ticket to the royal enclosure which is the super schmancy place in the whole royal ascot 
vicinity so you've got your ticket and you'll have access to you know really nice bars and restaurants and all that sort of stuff you'll have great viewing with the the seating out the front on the grandstand there of the long straight at royal ascot they run mile straight races which is unbelievable my recommendation to you would be to either before the first race so get there an hour or so early or after the last race head across to what is known as the car park area because what is tradition with Royal Ascot and a lot of um, British racing is that people set up picnics in the car park literally it's the car park but they will set up a little marquee with a little tent um, and have drinks and nibbles and things before the races and after the races and you know generally it'd be great if you could find someone that was hosting one of these car park events otherwise just go for a wander and see what it's all about because you'll see lots of union jacks around you know lots of people getting into the spirit of royal ascot and it's just a really cool thing to do which is unlike you'd never see that in australian racing you know i think it used to be a thing where you could sort of have those that marquee vibe Um, you know through Melbourne Cup week but certainly not anymore so it's definitely unique to Royal Ascot and British Racing and definitely go do that and also again away from the Royal Enclosure after the last race they have something called the bandstand at Royal Ascot which you need to go to and you'll be able to hear it because you can hear the music playing from a mile away but it's basically just a huge sing-along where they have amazing songs like sweet caroline playing and they have the words coming up on the screen and everybody's just drinking and doing this huge sing-along and it's called the bandstand so definitely go do that as well very unique to royal ascot well grace after those tips i'm very jealous of this listener going to royal ascot it sounds like so much fun especially the picnics and the sing-alongs sounds uh really good fun and we need more of that over here sounds lovely so the next one for you grace is who is a good female punting specialist to follow who has their bets publicly available and for free i think that might be part of the question as well do you know of any ladies that we can follow on socials or on a website or something grace that provides their bets well there's so many females in the racing media space um a lot of those will be providing tips you know through the media outlet that they work for so a couple that spring to mind um that i actually follow from afar and you know i'm not necessarily following to place the bets myself but i'll be you know watching sky racing and see this person come on um, and admire the fact that they're pretty bang on most of the time is bernadette cooper who is based up in queensland she's been on sky racing and within the racing media for many many years and she does an amazing job and she's definitely someone that i um, respect enormously because of how well she understands the game and her analysis is generally very accurate so she again isn't providing her tips you know on social media or anything for free but if you follow sky racing and follow the race meetings that she is covering um, i'm sure that you'll be able to see her tips come up on the screen um, and know that she's doing a really good job but i mean that's the case for so many of the girls fee that are working even um lizzie jelson jane ival in the mounting yard again they're not they're not on social media publicly putting their tips out but if you watch the channel that they're on you'll get those tips and um, they all do a really good job but yeah I'd say just off the top of my head one person 
um, that I think does a fantastic job would be Bernadette Cooper. I think as well we have to appreciate like since I've started doing form on a very basic level for ladies who punt like there's a lot of time that goes into this sort of analysis and especially for people who are giving away tips like they want to be damn sure that they are giving people the right option and if people are asking for you to pay a little bit of money for their tips for their expertise I think that's sort of fair because the time that they put in to come up with those options for you is you know significant and really you're looking to use those tips in order to earn a buck so I, I think that if you have the opportunity to support a woman who is offering you expertise form analysis and tips, like I think it's it's great to be able to support them because that's what is going to give them the longevity in their career. Like I can only speak for us, Grace, but we sink a significant amount of our time each week into Ladies Who Punt and until very recently we hadn't seen a dime come in in fact money going out and the only way that ladies who punt is going to be a sustainable product for our community to consume is if we get some sort of recuperation for our time and our effort because at the moment we've been doing it for the love and it's been great and we're really thankful for the community but long term people need to be able to keep the work up sustainably and that generally means people supporting them in in a monetary kind of way what are your thoughts on that am I being am I being uh, a bit uh out of line here what do you think <laughs> no no way fee because you're so right ultimately it is work and and especially when you factor in the fact that it's a skill set you know it's not just um something that it's not just an opinion without a lot a lot a lot of time and effort and work that's gone into it so no I think exactly what you've said um, makes a lot of sense and you're right it is about supporting females in the racing industry because there are plenty of males who do have you know private subscription services where you pay a certain monthly fee to gain access to their their analysis and their tips but it's not really a thing with females in the industry um and they're using their expertise for monetary compensation. So maybe it's something that we should all get behind in the future. So the next one, Grace, is all about your process when you are analysing the field. Is there an order in which you look at the field or does it change from person to person? And if so, what is your way of looking at the field? Yeah, definitely. It it would definitely change from person to person, but once you work out what works for you, um, you just basically rinse and repeat it every time which is what I do and what works for me is I always start if I get to a race um, open the race up I always start with working out the speed map before I even look at any of the horses and their winning chances before I look at a market most definitely I always look at the market last I do the speed map and work out how much speed is in the race what do I think the tempo of the race will be and therefore which horses are advantaged and disadvantaged as a result of how I think the speed map works out for the race and from there I literally just go in race book order go from one two three four work out my thoughts on each of the horses whether I think that they have got enough ability to win factoring in what I think about their chances in terms of the speed map as well and write notes on what I think that each of those horses chances are in the race and then basically come up with my opinion go back and have a look at it again um you know if you if you're not clear you can have a look at it again and again and again and if you don't get any clearer then it's just one of those ones 
um, which is a little bit murky and it's probably a, a low confidence race and a no play race. But then that's when you look at the market. And this is the thing. If I'm looking at a race and I'm like, yeah, I, I think this horse is going to be extremely hard to beat, um, pretty confident, pretty clear with the way that I see it. And then I go look at the market and, you know, it's not even the favorite. It might be second or third favorite. That's when I get excited because I'm like, woohoo, I'm going to back that horse because I think it's the wrong price. I think it's great value and that's my time to play. So, um, yeah, that's sort of the order that I, I do a race in fee. Speed map, each and every runner get my idea of who I think is going to be to the fore and then check the market to see um, if there's any you know potential bets that I can take in that race. That's a really good framework for people to work off who are looking for a little more structure so thanks for that Grace and another question for you how do you know how far into a preparation a horse is is there a standard amount of runs for a horse or is it horses for courses? Well, unfortunately, there is most definitely no structure to this. And that is just one of the many things that keeps us on our toes when we are assessing horses and races and, you know, form, trying to work out what's going to happen is that, you know, you might have plenty of confidence about a horse that comes out at their sixth run of the campaign, puts in an absolute stinker, and then you hear the jockey or the trainer afterwards say, oh, you know, the horse is just tired and he's telling us that he wants to go out to the paddock and he's had an end of prep run and you go great (laughs) i wish i had have known that beforehand but the, the fact is that even the trainer or the jockey wouldn't know you know it literally just comes down to what the horse is telling you the the role of a trainer and a jockey and anyone that works in a racing stable and with horses is to know that horse so well that you can understand what it's telling you at any time so um you know, that can either be that the horse is going to run really well or that the horse might be coming to the end of or his or her preparation. Unfortunately, the punters don't get that information or access to, you know, knowing what the horse is feeling. So um, it can be really difficult. But what I would say, while there is no structure to, um, you know, how many starts a horse has in a campaign before they need to go have their holiday in the paddock, you can certainly learn a lot about a an individual horse based on its past and the patterns that you can see for example there's a horse by the name of biometric that um, is a lindsay park trained horse you can have so much confidence in him that he could be seven runs eight runs into his preparation he will just keep doing the same consistent rating that he always does because he is just an extremely tough and sound horse and you can see that reflected in his efforts every time he goes around then there might be other horses that you go back and look at their form guide and every time they come back from a spell, so when they're first up, they run a great race, either win or run second and run really well. And then their second run back is probably not as good. And then their third run back is nowhere near as good and then they go out to the paddock again. So that's the pattern of a horse that may not have that constitution like biometric in that he is just very tough, war horse just keeps going and doing the same thing as a happy horse can keep replicating that same performance so every horse is different but you can certainly learn from the patterns of that horse in the past to try and predict what that horse will do for the upcoming race that you're looking at the last question we have regarding the form grace is how often does the sire side come into play when looking at a field and analyzing it or do you pay more attention to the dam side what are your thoughts on this one well fee i'm no pedigree buff so that's just I'm putting it out there right now. I don't go back and look at, 
you know, the sire line in terms of, you know, who the grandfather or great-grandfather was of a horse and all that sort of stuff. But I know a lot of people that do do that and that's their area of expertise and they have a whole system based on that that provides great results. So, you know, that definitely works. It's just not something that I do. However, I definitely do look at the stallion of any given horse, um, knowing what sort of a stallion that is, whether is it a speed stallion or is it a staying type of a stallion to understand what a horse might be doing in a race but importantly you know what a horse's best distance might be and therefore are they still building to that or are we seeing the best of them at the moment and so we could even take a race this saturday as an example Um, we are racing at sandown it is vobus gold day lots of rich prize money races for horses that are Vobus nominated but if we take a look at one of the races which is the showdown it's the main race it's worth a million dollars and it's for two-year-olds that are sired by Victorian stallions and the thing about this race is that it is for two-year-olds so it's a really good example because you know we are still learning a lot about these horses and if you take a look at um, the stallions that are represented with their progeny running in the showdown they're all victorian based stallions so it's only a, a small mix but we've got plenty of horses there by written tycoon uh, who is based at yulong and he is definitely a speed stallion you've got a horse like number eight she's all shenanigans who is by Toronado. so she's probably one that you could expect to see even get out a little bit further in distance maybe 1400 meters while she has only raced at a thousand meters in the past you know that she's got based on her breeding the capacity to go even beyond that you know that's not just her she's not just a thousand meter horse she's got more substance to her so that certainly holds her in good stead as well so there's different stallions that you can look at uh, obviously if you see a horse that's by so you think who is a amazing race horse um, and stands at coolmore if you see one of his progeny running first start over 1200 meters you can safely assume that that horse will only get better as he continues to get out in distance because so you think is most definitely a staying stallion so yeah i would definitely look at the stallion's fee um you know i don't put too much weight on it but it just gives you a really good guide of where a horse might be at at that distance yeah i think that was a really good explanation grace so I think you answered that one really well. I think we could definitely do a cheat sheet as well on stallions, couldn't we? Sprinting stallions, middle distance stallions and staying stallions. And that might help people make a little more sense of the breeding. Definitely something to do in the future for sure. Okay, Fee, it is now time to reverse the roles because you are in the firing line. I'm going to ask some questions that our community has directed at you. And the first one is if a horse is injured during its career what kind of rehab can they do grace this is a great question because like in any sport injuries are a fact of horse racing and trainers and owners have to be prepared for when injuries occur so how a horse is rehabbed is obviously very dependent on what kind of injury they have and I guess I'm taking this question because I have a bit of experience in this area. I was a vet nurse um, at Lindsay Park for about three years and worked under two very talented vets uh, that are at the stable. And I think the easiest way to answer this is to talk about the three probably most common injuries that I saw during my time in the vet department. And 
The first one would be chips and joints. That might be fetlocks or knee joints. The second type of injury would be soft tissue or tendon injuries. And then the third type, which don't occur very often, but have um, a really long rehab period, are stress fractures. So firstly, let's talk about the diagnostics of each of these injuries. So chips can be diagnosed using an x-ray machine. Tendon and soft tissue injuries are generally diagnosed using an ultrasound machine. And then stress fractures, the horse has to go to hospital to have a bone scan or an MRI. And what these do is show hot spots on the horse's limbs, which can indicate a stress fracture. So that's the way that we diagnose these injuries. Now to rehab them. So most joint chips will be fixed via surgery. Not all of them. Some of them can be managed um, in racing and in a horse's preparation with medication and changes to their training regime. But many will be taken out via surgery. So that means the horse goes to hospital, they'll have the chip removed, and then they'll come back to the stable to recuperate. And they'll spend a few weeks in the box resting after their surgery before heading out to the paddock where they will have 12 weeks in the paddock. For a tendon injury that is diagnosed via an ultrasound, the rehab can be a little more variable. So the ultrasound will scan the tendon and the tendon injury will look a bit like a hole on the ultrasound scan. And the size and severity of this hole determines how long um, this horse will need to recover. Some tendon injuries require the horse to be in the paddock for an entire year, 12 months of no work. And before they enter the stable to begin some rehab, their tendon will be scanned again to ensure that it is suitable to commence some kind of physical activity. Stress fractures, which are the least common of these three types of injuries, do require quite a bit of downtime, especially in confined areas. So once they get back from the hospital where they've been diagnosed with the stress fracture from their bone scan or MRI, they will stay confined to a box on box rest for about a month. Once they are sound in their box and the vet is happy with them, they can start a minimum of three months of paddock rest. And the first month should be spent in a small paddock just to stop them from getting up to full speed and putting too much load through the limb which has the stress fracture. After they've done their month in the small paddock they'd most likely get checked again by the vet and then they can go out to a larger paddock probably with a bigger group of mates to enjoy the rest of their downtime. So that's how it looks for horses on the calendar in terms of the time it takes to recover from these injuries out in the paddock. Now coming back into work they obviously will do some rehab and this starts to look quite similar across these three injuries, at least in my experience. The difference is how long they've had out away from work. So with a joint chip, it's about 12 weeks. For a tendon injury, it can be up for a year. And then for a stress fracture, at least three months out in the paddock, maybe longer. So the first thing that will happen across the board is that the horse will be checked that they are sound before they start any type of rehab. And then from my experience, what happens next is that the horse will will undertake a month of non-ridden work to build up a nice level of base fitness before they start to be ridden. And this type of work obviously would change from stable to stable depending on what type of facilities you have available. But from what I've seen, a lot of this time is spent in the water. This could be in a pool, in a water walker, in a water treadmill, 
and even a dry treadmill or a walker machine. So just getting the horse fit without any extra load on their body. And this month also serves another purpose of helping the horse strip any extra weight. Horses that tend to have these really long breaks, you know, you have to think like a tendon horse that's been out for 12 months and done literally no work and has been out in the paddock eating up, doing very well. They come in lovely and round. They're a lot heavier than a horse who's had a standard six-week spell. So in order to ease the pressure off of these limbs which have been injured, we want to get as much excess weight off the horse as possible before they go back under saddle. So for a horse that's had a chip taken out of the out of their joint they'll do the one month of non-ridden exercise and then have a trot up with the vet and then be cleared for ridden work a horse with a tendon injury will have their tendons scanned before they begin this type of rehab work on a water walker or a pool or a treadmill you know this non-ridden rehab they'll have their tendons scanned before they commence and then they will have their tendons scanned again after that month is complete and for some horses that will be enough and they'll go out of work for another break and for other horses they'll be able to commence to the next stage which is ridden pre-training. Once their pre-training is complete they will have another scan on their tendon to get the all clear to commence fast work and this one's really important because a lot of tendons will hold up under slow work conditions so we need to be really sure that it's looking in good shape before they start their fast work. And again, some horses might only get to the pre-training phase and then go out of work. Some horses might make it to a few gallops and then go out of work. Like just because they've had the rest in the paddock, that doesn't mean they're going to be back racing that very next prep. It's all about managing and looking after the horse and doing what's best for them and their racing career. So for a tendon injury, the horse is being monitored constantly throughout their racing prep to make sure that everything is holding up okay and that the horse can commence to the next phase of training. For a horse that suffered from a stress fracture, they'll have their time out in the paddock. Remember, it's three months minimum rest for them. And then they will have a trot up with the vet to make sure that they can commence their rehab. And again, it's the same with the joint chips or the tendon injury. In my experience, that looks like one month of non-ridden work. Once they've commenced that one month of unridden work, then if they are sound, they are allowed to continue with their racing preparation, but will be continually monitored throughout this preparation for any signs of soreness in the affected limb. There is just so much, isn't there, Fee, um, to do with this and in this space. And it's so true that once a horse has had any sort of injury, from then on, they will be constantly monitored to ensure that it doesn't happen again or to prevent it to the best of the people that look after that horse's ability. So I think that that is a really great answer to that question, which is, you know, so integral that people understand when it comes to our sport. Okay, next question for you, Fee. How do you decide on a horse's name? So this is a question that's really applicable to our fellow owners of the deep field, Amorphous Philly, who we have our Ladies Who Punt Syndicate with. We are going to have to, at some point, name this lovely little filly. And understanding how the process works is pretty important when it comes to picking out a name. So the way it works is that the entire ownership group will vote to come up with three options to put to the racing governing body, in our case, Racing Victoria. And we'll list them in order of preference on the official paperwork. Now, there are a few rules when it comes to nominating these names. 
The name can't be already taken or sound too familiar to a horse that is already racing. The name can't be longer than 18 characters, which includes spaces. And there is also some regulation around naming horses after actual people and brands. So a few other things to steer clear from. Now, when it comes to like, how do you pick the name? There are a lot of examples of people who have tried to combine the stallion's name and the mum's name, the dam, together in some kind of clever way. So sometimes it's very simple, like sandwiching them together and, you know, to use an example, like celebrity couples, so like Benefar or Brangelina, for example. Um, But, you know, we make it horses. Other times it's like a name or a phrase that might reference the parents' names, but you can really name them whatever you want as long as you stick within the rules. So for the ladies who are in our deep field amorphous filly, what we will do is probably amongst ourselves as a syndicate, come up with our name that we would like and offer that up to the rest of the ownership group to vote on to see if we can get it onto the official paperwork and hopefully in spot number one. So that's something to look forward to all of our Ladies Who Punt Syndicate girls that we will be looking to pick out a name in the coming months. Yeah, and naming horses is something that I think is so much fun. So it's so great to see all the different ideas that people come up with. Some of them obviously not quite getting through, but very creative and very entertaining still. So um, yeah, naming a horse is always such a great part of the ownership experience. Okay, Fee, final question for you. Can you tell us what happens to a racehorse upon retirement? So Racing Australia, the governing body, don't publish any statistics on this, but we do have a study that became available in 2021, which gives us a really good idea of what's happening to horses when they retire. So this study was published in 2021, which means it was peer-reviewed and passed close examination to be able to be published, and it looked at the outcomes for 2,509 horses in the 2017-2018 Australian racing season. So what's really encouraging about the study is that it's a really large sample size. And what that means is that we can be fairly sure that the outcomes of the sample can be applied across the whole racing population. From the study, what we can conclude is that for those horses that are retiring from racing, this is the percentage breakdown of what happens to them once they leave racing. The biggest group, 45% of horses that retire, go into equestrian or pleasure sports. These are mostly geldings because geldings can't service the breeding side of the industry. And geldings also have very good temperaments because they are gelded. So they can be a little more tractable for people outside of racing to ride, either as a pleasure horse or to compete with. So 45% of the entire population that is retiring each year goes into equestrian or pleasure sports. And this is a real testament to the thoroughbred as a breed because they are incredibly versatile, they're very smart, and they're incredibly athletic. We are now starting to see thoroughbreds compete at the highest level of equestrian sports, including the Olympics. In fact, we're even seeing retired racehorses competing at this highest level. So at the Beijing Olympics, Shane Rose competed on a retired racehorse called All Luck. And recently, Shanae Lowings represented Australia at the World Equestrian Games on a retired racehorse called Bold Venture. So after 45% have moved on to equestrian or pleasure sports, the next biggest group are the breeding group. 
and it's estimated that 30% of horses that retire from racing will move on to the breeding industry. Most becoming broodmares and very, 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 very few becoming stallions. So most of this 30%, you know, probably 99.99 are going to be broodmares. And then that very small percentage who are lucky enough to go to the stallion barn will head off in that direction. So that's 75% of retired racehorses every year accounted for just in those two groups. Next, we go on to companion horses. 8.4% of racehorses that retire will go on to become companions. And what this could look like is a nanny horse on a stud. And these horses serve a really important role in looking after groups of weanlings once they've been separated from mums. They are the unsung heroes of the breeding world. And then companion horses can also just mean horses on private farms who are there to keep another horse company or just for people like my horse, Jack and Obey. He's at my house and his job now is really just to eat grass and let me go and pat him every now and then and very occasionally jump on his back and take him for a ride. So that's what I would call, you know, the companion horses. So after that 8.4%, we have 4.6% that go on to breed outside of the thoroughbred industry. As I was saying earlier, thoroughbreds are an incredibly smart, versatile breed. And this means that they are great for being crossbred. In New Zealand, I'm not sure here in Australia, but in New Zealand, a really common crossbreed with thoroughbreds is actually a Clydesdale. So you get a Clydesdale thoroughbred cross and they're quite in demand over there because they are generally cool, calm and collected in their nature from the Clyde, but they obviously have a lot of refinement put into them in terms of their body type, thanks to the thoroughbred. And just a little side story here, the Stallion Z, who is the sire of Very Elegant, he actually spent a couple of years on a Clydesdale station in the South Island of New Zealand serving Clydesdale mares before he started to get a few winners on the racetrack and was promptly brought back home to resume thoroughbred stud duties. So that's sort of a really specific case, but there's certainly a market for thoroughbreds to be crossbred amongst other breeds within the equine world. Moving on from that, we then have 3.9% of retired racehorses are returned back to their owners. So that seems simple enough. The owners who race them then take them on as retirees and keep them themselves. 1% of retired racehorses go on to be used by the industry. An example I'm thinking of um, for this group are lead ponies in a racing stable. So then there's two more groups to go. The study found that 1.5% of the horses that they tracked that retired went on to do things outside any of the above mentioned options. So what they were doing in retirement didn't fit any of the options that have already been listed. And then lastly, the study found that the final 5.8% of horses that haven't been accounted for yet had no known second career or an unspecified second career. Now, that 5.8% is a number that the industry is investing a lot of money to drive down. What we can take though is that 94.2% of retirees have a purpose once they retire from racing. But yeah, this 5.8% is a number that we really need to drive down. 
I think there's truly a whole episode on racehorse retirement and traceability because it's really important and all of us listening into ladies who punt are consumers of the content that these horses give us and whether it's just attending the races or having a punt or being an owner or being someone who works within the industry this is all only available to us because of the horses and it's important that we are all aware and involved in giving these horses the best outcomes possible once they leave racing. But there's definitely a whole episode on this for sure in the future and I just have to give a quick mention to Kick Up for Racing providing for providing all of this info on their website. If you have any questions about this type of thing and about racing and the ethics of racing, I would really encourage you to check out their website. Could not agree more, Fee. Um, That is such an important thing for every single person within the racing industry to focus on Um, and definitely echo your thoughts there about kick up for racing. And yeah, it's just something that we need to keep getting better at. And I think I have full confidence that we're going to get there. Definitely. The, The signs are all very positive at the moment. Well, Grace, when I looked at the list of questions, I was like, oh, we'll breeze through these in no time. But it's actually taken us quite a bit of time to uh, get to the bottom of them. And it's been a really interesting group of questions. What do you think of the scope of questions? It's been a good chat, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely it has. And we definitely encourage anybody that is still left thinking, oh, hang on, I don't understand this bit to fire those questions through again. Because, um, you know, we love hearing what is puzzling you or what is something that you would enjoy understanding better so make sure you keep asking those questions and we'll do our best to get back to you well as we mentioned at the top of the show this is our last episode for a few weeks we are going to be back uh, towards the end of may when the racing action heads up to queensland so what we'll do is do some re-releases of our past episodes to keep us in your ears while we take a quick freshen up but we are really looking forward to joining you guys back when the action is up in Queensland so uh, we will be talking to you very soon When you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers If you have a lot of mailing to do Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.